Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We're a working library with a growing collection of more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall in the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are R.J. Smith, author of The One, The Life and Music of James Brown, and also an editor and writer at Cincinnati Magazine. Hey, hello. And Great Jay's, to be here. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. It's okay. And Jay Stowe, uh, editor-in-chief at Cincinnati Magazine. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jay. Today we'll be discussing Bob Mayer's book, Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, which tells, well, the true story of the replacements, a rock band formed in 1979 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The original members of the replacements, singer-songwriter-guitarist Paul Westerberg, guitarist Bob Stinson, his brother, bassist Tommy Stinson, and drummer Chris Mars came from working-class, often troubled backgrounds. Paul Westerberg once joked that the band members didn't have a driver's license or a high school diploma between them. Influenced by an eclectic mix of classic rock, power pop, glam, and punk, the replacements were known for drug and alcohol-fueled concerts that can charitably be described as erratic, including an infamous drunken appearance on Saturday Night Live that earned them a lifetime ban from the show. Despite releasing several highly influential and critically beloved albums throughout the 80s, the replacements never achieved large-scale commercial success and broke up in 1991. Uh, so uh, I think before we get started, um, I think we should just kind of go around and say you know, where we come at this as replacements, fans, or wow. where we start at, I guess, with the yeah. book. Yeah. Well, this is RJ. For myself... Um, you know, it was uh, the early 80s, about 84, and I was uh, doing some uh, writing at the Village Voice in New York, and I saw somebody had mentioned uh, something favorable about this band that I'd never heard of, and I went out, and I think it was the Replacement Stink EP was the one that, uh, that I was uh, listening to and that was being raved about, and it just was incredible to me. Uh, and so I was a fan. I, I, I'm born and raised in Detroit, so I'm a Midwesterner. Here was a band that spoke of the Midwest to me somehow. And uh, I just became a huge fan and went on the road with them uh, in, in 84. Uh, and actually, I, I mentioned this before, but I think this is the first time in 12-story uh, podcast history that someone's on the podcast who actually appears in the book. <laughs> so. That's right. How about you, a Jay? Command performance yeah. by RJ. That's oh, excellent. my God. Um, so I was in, I think I was a freshman in college when I bought my first Replacements record, which would be uh, Let It Be. And I was familiar with them. I'd heard of them, but I hadn't bought any of the records yet. Um, I knew of them in high school, kind of, you know, like this would so... They'd already existed for a good five or six years when I graduated from high school, but so I, I kind of came a little late to them to some degree. But um, their attitude, that Midwestern aspect, was um, I picked up on somewhat. And the shambling, they're, they're kind of... Uh, whatever they're kind of shambolic. I don't know their ability to the, to have just be this kind of shambling band that could also suddenly coalesce and deliver just incredibly powerful, great indie rock 
you know, suffused with everything you mentioned, whether it's glam or punk or Americana or whatever, all kind of in one big blender, you know, but, but shot through with amazing attitude appealed to me. Yeah. And, uh, and so I became a fan. Excellent. Well, uh, personally, um, I, I bought a cutout of All Shook Down at some point, and I don't remember ever listening to it. I, I, I wasn't really familiar with replacements at all before I read this book. I got interested in the book and started listening. Um, but I, I'm a huge fan um, of, like you say, kind of a, the shambling, mm-hmm. r- little bit of everything that just kind of forms around a, an excellent song that comes out. Um, and, it, it, you know, I was talking to a friend about this book and kind of recommending it to her. Uh, she's a little bit older than me, mm-hmm. so she kind of came of age musically in maybe the late 80s, where I was more of the mid-90s. And I, I said something like, well, I, I'm, I can't believe you're a Replacements fan. And she said, what are you talking about? Everyone I know <laughs> yeah. is a Replacements <laughs> fan. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, yeah. well, that's weird because nobody I know <laughs> is a Replacements fan. And um, I, I, one of the quotes I pulled out of this was um, from Paul Westerberg, Westerberg who said... Uh, that they were five years ahead of their time and also five years behind the time. Mm. Um, I think that that's, uh, I hate to jump to the end, but I mean, that's, that's a sense where we're starting with this book is that um, their star shoots across the firmament and basically nobody pays attention to it. I mean, if you were into indie rock and you were into alternative rock and everything in the, in the 80s, you totally knew about them and paid attention to them and people who were fans of the replacements were devoted fans of the replacements. But they never, you know, the tragedy for them is they were never able to make the leap to mainstream um, popularity. Uh, you, I guess I'd say tragedy because, of, because success was something they clearly wanted that comes out in the book, but they had an extremely difficult personal, psychological, you know, ability to accept that kind of success or to, or to, to try to play the game, really, to mm. get to, to achieve that. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just to jump in. I, I think also, I mean, they were like one of the first, I think, bands, at least of their generation, to go from indie label to a major label. And they were really like the canary in the coal mine uh, f- on both ends. For, for yeah. bands, how do we do this and not go nuts? For labels, how do we do this and not go broke? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think... After them, some things went better, some things never got any better uh, in terms of uh, interfacing with the indie audience and bands and making it make sense on a major label. But uh, they got the worst of it to some degree uh, along the way, I think. Well, and this gets talked about a lot in the book, but um, we should say that I I really think Bob Muir, the author, did an amazing job with the book in terms of just it's... It's it's a it really follows you know very closely with tons of detail and great interviews with a ton of different people from the band on, you know it gives you a little through the replacements a brief history of indie rock in America and also exactly what you just said R J you know that relationship between what happens when independent band gets you know scooped up by a major label and they're going to try to make money on them on the major which when you were listening to that music back then, often was like, oh, they sold out or they being co-opted or whatever. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a problem for those bands because if you didn't make that transition and, and do it in a way where you could keep your old fans and gain new ones, that, 
so many bands never were able to do that. And right. the re replacements are a great example of that. But they, what I was going to say is, you know, I remember actually writing this, but it comes up myself, which means I probably cribbed it from somebody else, but it's in the, in the book where, like, you know, an analog for the replacements and at the time R.E.M. were, like, you know, the replacements were the Rolling Stones of their indie rock generation and R.E.M. was kind of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And um, they both were on that same kind of trajectory at the same time and both were actually courted by major labels around the same time and R.E.M. made that yeah. transition, you could almost, looking back, say seamlessly, yeah. whereas the replacements did not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, much as they tried, um, and, and for a whole host of reasons, which we'll get into. But that, that uh, it's interesting to see how that you know, trajectory takes off, and then you just, through the book, you see why it did not work. And that... That was great for me because I came at them as a fan. Mm -hmm. I worked at Spin for a period of time, so I, I got to know, uh, you know, I was a big fan of the music, but I, but I only gleaned, I should say, from working at Spin, a slight bit of understanding of how <laughs> the music I loved interacted with the business that put that music out. Yeah. I learned a lot more about the business in this book, and specifically just because he does a great job of talking to everybody at Warner Brothers and Sire Records, who, on the major label side, as well as Peter Jesperson, Twin Tone Records, which is, we should give them a ton of credit for putting out the first bunch of great albums by the replacements, but how, you know, the, the yeah, you know, you come out as a fan, you just think somebody makes music and they put it out, and if you like it, you like it. Mm -hmm. But of course, in the business of, of that we call records or whatever, <laughs> you know, they're, they're trying to figure out what's the single, what's the, what's going to get hot. Can we put this thing on MTV and is it going to take off at the time? That was a big deal because right. MTV was a big thing and music videos were a big thing. Yeah. Um, of course the replacements refused <laughs> to make a music video for a long time, which yeah. again, it was like the number of times they just took out, took their, sh their foot out of their shoe and just shot another toe off. Yeah. That takes place over the course of their whole history is amazing in this yeah. book. So, uh, I think, you know, you, you talk, just to get back to kind of the beginning of the story, you, you talked about them um, kind of having to change from what they wanted to do to what the labels wanted them to do. And they, they you know, they started in Minneapolis, kind of coming out of, I believe, like the hardcore scene there. They were more, a, a lot punkier then. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then they, they kind of started experimenting with some, gentler music i guess which the fans really didn't like it seems like in the in the music like i think some did and some didn't i mean this yeah. is the, so and that's that there's a classic so they they made two transitions in a mm -hmm. sense and they willfully made the first transition from like we're not just going to play punk sounding songs anymore and if you go back and listen to that stuff it's punk but it's their own it's definitely their own brand they the book makes clear like they really didn't like playing hardcore shows right they thought those guys were losers and it just flipped the switch for the whole band to start fucking with the audience, uh -huh. you know, and that that's a whole other subject we can get into about yeah. their enjoyment of, as they called it, let's do the pussy show, yeah. you know, which was let's do whatever the hell we want up here, whether we're drunk or not, mm -hmm. and just push the buttons of these idiots in the audience that we don't like. Yeah. Um, but they made that transition to uh, just more thoughtful, more interesting songs. I think in general, it was an evolution that was natural for Paul Westerberg and the rest of the band. And, uh, and it, 
and I liked that. I mean, to me, that's like, in particular, um, you know, that even on the EP that RJ mentioned, Stink, uh, I didn't have that until like about a year ago, and I, I sought it out, and I found a, a CD of it, and somebody, Rhino, working with Twin Tone, I think, re-released it, and there's some extra stuff on there. But one of the songs that I know I had heard, probably back in college, but never, and realized it was a replacement song. I was like, what album is that on? I never, you know, whatever. It was a song just called Go. That's a really great song plunked down in the middle of a kind of a bunch of <laughs> punk songs, you know, yeah. and them doing their thing on Stink, which is just an EP of like, I don't know, in the end, nine songs or something. And I was like, that's like a great lost, you know, little um, place marker in Paul Westerberg's development as a songwriter yeah. that... I hadn't, you know, when I heard that, I was like, I gotta find that because, like, that's that's just a great song, and it's not a punk song. It's more, it's just a good, not even, you know, yearning rock song or something, you know, and it's more dramatic sounding without trying to sound wishy-washy about it. It's a good rock song, but it's yeah. anyway. Like he was already making that transition in his yeah. music writing abilities. I mean, there was always a sense of humor. And, and a sense of being fans of all kinds of music uh, themselves that, that, that you can hear on those records, even the, even the first ones. And that distinguishes them from, not from punk, but from hardcore and from, you know, kind of a mentality of here are all the things we're not. I mean, Paul is always telling you all the things he is um, until you want him to be those things, and then he's not going to do that. Right. <laughs> but, I mean... There's an expansiveness that kind of distinguished them from their surroundings from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought one of the really interesting characters in the book um, was uh, Peter Jesperson, yeah. who yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember which one s said it, but someone said there are probably a lot of great bands out there that just don't have a, a Peter Jesperson. And he, he, Paul gave him some tapes, you know, and he heard, he heard something that he really liked, and he was with Twin Tone, the, the, the label... Um, which which really which really got them going. Um, yeah, and then that uh, he worked at that um, record store called if I'm getting or folk Jokopus. Yeah, or folk joke. Okay, I didn't know if it was if it was folk Jokopus because of maybe course it, it's yeah. up in you know that's Scandinavian yeah. you know up there in Ma Minneapolis. But this uh, which I've never been to. I don't know if it's still around, but was supposedly an amazing record store in the '70s and, and '80s there in Minneapolis. Yeah, he was the guy at the record store who got it before anybody else did, mm -hmm. and. Well, when I went on the when I went on the road with them, I remember a time when, and I think this is in the book. Uh, maybe I don't remember. Maybe I read it, but uh, <laughs> where um, Bob is grousing, just bands on the road grousing about whatever, and uh, he he wants to know, you know, maybe they had split the, the 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 cash that they got from the show the night before, and. They, everybody got their cut, and it was ten bucks, you know, for everybody in the circle, something like that. And 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 Bob says to Paul, "Well, alone with me, the reporter hanging over the shoulder. So why is he here with us? Meaning Peter. Uh -huh. And and Paul says because he liked us before anybody else did. And that says it all. He was he was the first fan, and." the best kind of fan a band can have. Yeah. <laughs> the guy that ends up driving the van sometimes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then gets treated terribly, you know, when when they sever the relationship. Yeah. Um, 
and that gets like I keep saying gets into the whole the psychological makeup of this band which comes out so wonderfully in the book yeah like Mir really explores it in many different ways you know and each of the members talk about it you know with distance and uh, you know and he, sadly he wasn't able to talk to Bob Stinson because Bob Stinson died in 1994 if I'm remembering correctly um, uh, but he's represented Bob has represented massively throughout the book because of all the other interviews he gave people and all that everybody else talked about him and all that but the that kind of you know like it's like they they uh were happy to and so elated to have been discovered by Peter Jesperson they were playing in their basement whatever that crappy basement at the the basement of the Stinson house I guess was yeah. and just Really loved it, but obviously had some ambitions behind it, mainly probably fueled mostly by Paul in terms of ambition, I would think, or pushing, pushing, pushing a bit and getting them out there. And then they get out there, and people respond to them in Minneapolis in a very positive way, and they become very popular. But, you know, it's said in the book, Bob, who was originally Bob's band, Westerbrook joins the band, He's the one who starts writing songs. And you can say that, you know, legitimately he essentially took over the band um, because of that and because of the forcefulness of his own personality, I think. But Bob was also the kind of, also the mascot in a way of the band, the oldest guy and the older brother of Tommy and was his own crazy personality and, and brilliant in his own way and what he brought to the mix. And, and what happens when they when they go big, when they go into the major, is that it's clear, and they kind of say in the book, he never really wanted them to, to leave Minneapolis. He just wanted them to be this great band in Minneapolis, and that would yeah. have been fine with him. Um, and he couldn't handle the, for a whole host of other reasons, you know, the fame, I don't know if it's the right word for it, just the being suddenly on a much larger um, scale than they ever had been. Because... They really didn't have fame. They had infamy. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean, just like this, the, the shit they pull and the stupid stuff they do, and, which is funny in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but it was also so self-sabotaging, yeah. you know, so, so often and, and hurtful to themselves, amongst themselves. Yeah. Um, it's, I can't think know. of, an, you know, there's a lot of good books about musicians and music out there, a lot, but there aren't many books any better that I can think of right now about bands, as bands, mm -hmm. as individuals who have, you know, this fabric of relationships inside and a fabric of relationships with fans outside and so many things, good and bad, that can happen to them. Uh, I mean, I, you know, there's a book or two about the Beatles that, that do a great job in the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, I, some good books about the Stones, but I don't know if, if if there's one like that about the Stones, uh, with that kind of insideness, and uh, and 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 be, you're right there as all this. I mean, he did over 230 interviews, uh, and I, I, he said I read right before I got here. He talked to you know people 20 or 30 times a, a piece. Some of he these individuals. He yeah. had to have done. He had to have gone back to the well with Westerberg and Stinson. I don't know how many times. Yeah. You know? And that's yeah. that's impressive. I mean, it's one of the great books about being in a band and yeah. the rise and fall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a rise and fall book. 
It's. I was saying to you earlier that I, I see it, also you can call it a tragedy on some level. You know, the only person who ends up dying is Bob, which is tragic for its own reasons, but there are other, the, the tragedy of them wanting success and wanting fame, but not being equipped in any kind of psychological way to accept that, mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, squelching their own abilities to do that, and yet still wanting it. And then also just like, the tragedy of seeing everybody else, the, what are their five years ahead and five years behind? I mean, yeah. seeing all these other bands and or individuals have success in ways that they, that are not carbon copies, but the DNA of the replacements are in a lot of these other people. Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're not reaping the benefits of that in any way, shape, or form. Right. I mean, they have themselves to blame in a lot of ways yeah. for that. Uh, I keep thinking of, and I was trying to find it last night, but the incident in the, it's near the end of the career, kind of, but I think it's in 89 or 90. They're on tour for, I think, for Don't Tell a Soul, um, which is their second major label album, which was kind of overproduced, which they get into in the, in the book. And, but they're in that bus, the tour bus that they'd been in. It's one of the Silver Eagle tour buses. And... They treated their tour, the tour vans, and the other thing, which you are actually in one of their tour vans, so you could attest <laughs> to this. But one of the one of the things. <laughs> or, so before I get to the Silver Eagle, there's another like their tendency to want to destroy the vehicles that that drove them all around the country oh, yeah. to play because the, one of the hysterical things about this is no nobody in the band did actually have driver's licenses. <laughs> nobody could drive, you know, and so like that becomes a weird little sub theme throughout the whole book. But like. One of the vans, or one of the the eighty-six kind of like tour bus, the eighty-six tour bus. Is that the one where they completely destroyed and just threw all the crap in the back, and it they, was like a heap of stuff? They needed to travel because they were drinking so much, and because they were driving so much between shows, they needed to travel with a toilet. So right. I think Jesperson uh, got them this. I don't know if it was a camper or a bus or I thought I thought it was an RV. I think oh, yeah, it was an it's RV. An RV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 as you say, they they needed it, they wanted it, they got it, and within weeks it was totally destroyed. All the windows except for the windshield were broken. Yeah. The toilet, I believe, was they th- threw, threw it out, out the back <laughs> or something. <laughs> like, yeah. And then there's a line where like I think Bob took a dump on the pile of stuff back there one time <laughs> after the toilet yeah. had been thrown out the thing. You know. Yeah. And anyway, the Silver Eagle, which is a much nicer, you know, tour bus. This is there on a major label and everything. They, Tommy and Paul, just suddenly get their demons come out and they start trying to literally again rip, just pull the table up by, you know, pull, destroy the furniture. You know, literally just trying to destroy the stuff. And the guy who's driving it, you know, for the yeah. first time ever, they have somebody who's not really affiliated with the band driving the the the, the bus, and he's like what's going on back there? You know, and he kind of like pulls over to the side and he comes out and he flips his lid. Yeah. You know, he can't believe what he's seeing. And of course, the other guys who were with, you know, at this point, like their sound man and whoever else are, were asleep when Tommy and Paul started doing this. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chris Mars was, I don't know if he was even still with the band at that point. I can't remember in this stage of it. But, you know, Slim Dunlap was just kind of like, whatever. But, the, the driver kind of like, you know, is this one voice of reason mm-hmm. kind of saying like, what, what the fuck are you guys yeah. doing? Yeah. Don't you realize? And he kind of, I think it even at some point says, don't you realize 
this comes out of your money. I mean, you're, you guys will have to pay to restore this whole bus that you're attempting to destroy. And, and Westberg cracks like, ah, just part of the territory, man, or something like that. Yeah. But I think it was one of those, everybody else like, finally woke up to it, even the other Soundman guys. They're all like shaking their heads like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And it was one of those, that was a signature moment for me where they were just so out of touch with like how they were screwing themselves over with this kind of behavior all the time. Mm. Uh, but maybe it suddenly hit one of them like, oh, you know. You know, I know Mayor talks about uh, uh, the, the whole, almost a ritual <laughs> after a while that they would have with their per diem on the road, right? Where the label gives you, <laughs> yes. you know, whatever, 20 bucks a day or you know, that you can buy your, your food with and whatever, your, your, your beers with or whatever. And they would get together and set it on fire. Yes, literally. $100 bills on fire. Yeah. It's like a ritual, you know? And there's no question that, that, they, that they knew what they were doing in some senses of that phrase. Yeah. Um, and it meant certain things. I mean, they... Did they know, okay, now we don't have money for a hamburger or our beers or whatever? Maybe they weren't thinking about that at the moment. But, but they did, it meant something that, well, we all know what it means, uh, an act of, 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 of insane um, rock and roll destructiveness. Like, you know, way beyond throwing the TV out of the window. This is, you know, throwing your TV out of the window. <laughs> yeah. um, and your clothes. Yeah. And your silverware. But, but there's also, and, 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 and Mayor really puts this across, um, a twisted, deep, and maybe profound kind of brotherhood yeah. <laughs> in all of this where they were like, okay, we've got each other and this is a thing that we're sharing. And, you know, it's, it was like cutting your, it's corny, and this is corny. It's cutting your finger and smearing the blood on each other's thumb or something. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. like, okay, we are so together that we are doing this thing and it's not about money. And we can prove it's not about money because we just burned it all. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we are point. together. <laughs> yeah. It was us against the world. I yeah. mean, that's what it was. Well, them, them against the world. Jay, I think we've talked about the, the part where uh, Peter Jesperson goes on tour with R.E.M. for a while to help them out. Yeah. And then when he comes back, I think Paul and Tommy are treating him coldly, and he doesn't yeah. know why, and they're like, don't you get it? You're not one of us anymore. Yeah. Like, you're not part of this, yeah, this circle bubble. anymore. And, yeah. of course, they had encouraged him to do that. Right. The, and it, you know, this gets into this, the insane psychology of these guys of, mm -hmm. like, you know, they'd say one thing and then turn on you the next time. Yeah. Um, which a lot of people can be that way for sure, but but they they just kept feeding that fire, you know, over the course of the the time that they continued to grow and then stopped growing. I mean, uh, uh, their followings was growing, but as it grew, you know, it sounds like a math problem. As the coefficient <laughs> grows, yeah. you know, it was like as their popularity or their following and their knowledge of, of who the replacements are grew, it's not really fame, but acknowledgement, their mistrust grew with it of everybody and everything. Yeah. And Jesperson is, a, is a, a one of the tragic moments in the book for sure is, yeah, it's like they say, yeah, 
and they're kind of buddies with REM. You know, they, they had competition, but it was a healthy competition. Yeah. And I mean, Peter Buck plays a solo on I Will Dare on Let It Be. It's, you know, and they just let him, you know, like, hey, why don't you play it, Peter? You're in the studio. And um, so, like, they're like, yeah, go off and do that with him because we'll learn something from it. I mean, th- I think Bob says that in the book. That was actually something they said to him. They thought, we'll learn something from this. Right. And he, com- he goes off, comes back, and they basically hate him for it for the rest of his, not the rest of his life, but until they can him. And then he and Westerberg and Stinson eventually made up years later. But, you know, and he was totally sideswiped by that, you know. And you see it in the book. I mean, he talks about it in the book. I mean, it, he went into kind of an alcoholic spiral because of it and had yeah. to eventually, you know, clean himself up. But it was, you know, t- talk about the guy who's, you said the true believer dude who just, they just, like the toilet, he, they threw him out the back of the bus at one point. Yeah. yeah. I came up with a great phrase for that. It was like a rolling pot latch when you're on the road <laughs> with, with the replacements. <laughs> well, there, there was another section that kind of relates to that, that, um, and I'm quoting from the book here. Uh, it says that when it came to choosing a label, manager, booking agent, or producer, the replacements would behave in horrible, offensive, and alarming ways, and whoever survived was typically who they'd work with. So it almost was like they would just do the worst that they could, and if someone still wanted to yeah. work with them, that's what I mean, they would they do. I mean, they lucked out by ending up with Jim Dickinson for producing their major label debut, Please mm-hmm. to Meet Me. No, that's not, sorry, that's not the debut. Tim was the debut. Right. After the but, next one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, so it was the second album. Please yeah. to Meet um, Me. Which... You know, I, and we could go back and forth on is that a good record or not, but I went back and listened to it, and compared to Tim, it's a different record for sure, and it's yeah. got a brightness and a sheen to it in the production that, that Tim didn't have, which you can either like or not. But the songs are still yeah. good songs, yeah. and they're still the replacements. They're still the replacements with that record. Yeah. And even though Bob has been kicked out of the band at that point, they're, they're not the same replacements, but, and I do, that's something we could go on great length, but I, it, when I listen to those two records, when I, that juncture between yeah. Bob's still in the band on Tim, Bob's no longer in the band on uh, Pleased to Meet Me, something was definitely missing from that point on. Right. It wasn't just his presence and everything, it was also literally in the playing and the, and the kind mm. of the, the sound of the music they were making. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Jim Dickinson was, you know, a storied, you know, amazing musician and record producer in his time, and they did luck out by ending up with him. And he he kind of knew how to handle them yeah. in mm-hmm. the studio. And they and and Alex Chilton's floating around on the periphery there. You know, who's friends with Dickinson and is in Memphis when they're recording. And um, that's funny stuff about they write the song Alex Chilton, yeah. and they they basically try to keep him from under- <laughs> knowing that they've written this song. So anytime. He comes by the studio like, make sure that turn that off, or you know, to get that put yeah. that tape away, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, that, I thought that was kind of funny because mm. it gets back to they're, they're so boyish in so many ways, you know, like like there's there's such a like sometimes lovable immaturity about them, and oftentimes a total like bratty, insane immaturity about them that that just makes you want to bang your head against a wall, yeah, you know, yeah. And I'm I should. I sound like that, like, why didn't you guys, why weren't you rational and reasonable? You could have had it all. Yeah. You know, but, and I understand what you were saying. Like, they didn't, they didn't want it all, mm-hmm. and yet they sometimes kind of did. And, yeah. and, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, they wanted, <laughs> well, I mean, what, what the other guys in the band wanted and what Paul <laughs> wanted are probably yeah. 
ultimately they intersect, diverge. but um, but not always on the same page. But uh, they wanted to be heard. They they wanted to be loved. They wanted a bigger audience. Um, but they also wanted to uh, not give you what you wanted. Yeah. And if you wanted them to rock, they weren't. They were not going to give you that. If you wanted them to be fuck ups, they weren't going to be that. And that's exhausting and complicated. And it keeps. You know, how do you how do you keep that going? How do you sustain that as a career of being surprising or being uh, contrary? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, like they were they were spent. You know, I mean, the alcoholism aside, I mean, just that what you just talked about, just. Had to psychically, you know, drain them um, over yeah. time. Yeah. But 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 part of it all, and and it and it speaks to what you're talking about, and it speaks to part of what not giving you know, giving people what they want is is they never ever phoned it in. I mean, right. Yeah. Maybe toward the end, or you know, maybe in the studio when they hated being there or something, but. Most all the time, in all those shows, if they weren't feeling it, they found a way to tell you in a really amazing, compelling way. They they weren't going to pretend, yeah. and that was a part of the whole thing with with the audience was whatever we're feeling, we're going to get you to feel it too, and mm-hmm. you're going to be a part of this thing, <laughs> and you got to do your part too, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> and. There's something amazing and rare and and boyish about that. Yeah. And uh, they never wanted to lie to you <laughs> about anything. And that's awesome. You, exactly. Yeah. No, it totally is. Like, the honesty was uh, astounding because that honesty would was even hurting them and yeah. hurting yeah. other people around them. But they could not not be honest. And, I mean, there's a quote in the book where it, later on at some point the managers, Russ Rieger or Gary Hobib or Habib, or one of them is talking to Westerberg and saying, like, this is your, you know, after Please to Meet Me came out and they're on the label, and this is your, you know, he's kind of put it in the context of, like, you guys got to start, you know, we know you can do these amazing shows. You know, you, you got to do that with more consistency, not have the fuck-up shows. Right. And, and Westbrook says, I will never be able to give you 100%. Because he, he kind of made a comparison to, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen can go out and do that. And, like, I think that struck a nerve immediately with Westbrook, who, who was a fan of Springsteen's and understood yeah. what he was saying, but said, I can't. I, I can't do that. I, I physically and mentally cannot do that. I can't give you 100% every time because of how taxing it, it was on him. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they would have those shows where they would just screw around. Um, and then they could have the next night a show that was just incandescent. And, you know, it just depended on when you hit them and what mood they were in, obviously how much alcohol they'd had and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, that's an amazing thing. Like, they were, talk about hearts on the sleeve. They were never not hearts on the sleeve. Right. And that, and that also, <laughs> that, open, like, weird vulnerability, I guess you'd say, is what messed them up. But the stuff they put people through, (laughs) you know, I was thinking, like, that anecdote where, like, they get the guy, somebody at Sire convinces somebody from CAA, of all places, to come in and maybe be their (laughs) agent or manage, or take over his management or something or whatever, or be their new Jesperson. And Westerberg meets him, and, of course, they're talking to him in a bar, 
and he says, you know, Tommy and Paul were drinking doubles. And so by like the third drink in, you know, they were already getting kind of shit faced. And, and finally, and he's just keep playing it straight. I mean, he sounded like, you know, an Ovitz Robotron or something, but he, he's, he's clearly like, wasn't sure he wanted to be, or that CAA would want to be representing the replacements anyway. And then seeing them in action, which is kind of like, I see where this is going. <laughs> and then like it ends up with Westerberg basically doing that. Well, okay, you can be our manager if you if you if you drop your pants right now, jump up on the bar and cluck like a chicken <laughs> up and down. And the guy's like thought about it for a second, and he's like, you know, Paul, my self respect means more to me than wanting to be your your manager. So no, I'm yeah. not going to do that. Yeah. And then Westerberg's like, call call Mike Ovitz on the phone right now and tell him blah 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 blah. And he was like thinking, he was like. Am I gonna call my boss, Mike Ovitz, on the phone right now? Who's, you know, it's eleven o'clock at night. And he's probably in bed. No, I'm. I'm not gonna do this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was just this whole like, just the asinine activity of uh, on their part of you know doing this, which was fun for mm-hmm. sure, but also, you know, it was absurd. And yes, they were being themselves, so they could not be themselves, not not be themselves. Yeah, that's one of the one of the the big feelings I took away from the book is that through the whole thing I kept wanting to say just this one time <laughs> like this one CBGB show and all the label people are there can you just just this <laughs> once do a good show yeah and it, it just was it was frustrating but so readable I mean I just I, I love yeah. the book but I love the fact that they say that like and nobody seemed to learn this lesson. That's the other thing with dealing with them. I think there were everybody at the label, not everybody, but a lot of the people at the label and other people in more professional parts of the business around them, wanting them to succeed, would always fall for the trap of telling them ahead of time, oh, this like it's an important show tonight, boys, because <laughs> yeah. blah blah's in the office or in the audience. And it was just like, you just flip the switch. They're right. going to fuck it up royally. You know, They're not <laughs> yeah. going to try you yeah. you shouldn't have told them you know <laughs> yeah. so i don't know it's tragic though i mean in my i still like well i mean three out of the four are still alive um i guess way well, i should of the originals slim dunlap is not well but i think is still alive uh steve foley who was the last drummer did right. die so he, he passed away but of the original guys you know they're still there and they made up eventually you know years later um, you know, the fact that Tommy and Paul have this massive falling out near the end of the trajectory of the band's existence, you could kind of see that coming as, as Bob lays it out. I mean, he foreshadows it, I think, pretty well. Um, but they come back together, and, they're still, and they still have this bond. You know, they don't... It's interesting, Mars doesn't have the same kind of bond with them, but yeah. even... From the beginning, it, it was clear that he was kind of his own man anyway. Yeah. He could play the same game as they could. He could do the same stuff, whether it was getting drunk and acting out and doing crazy stuff. But earlier on than the rest of them, he's pulling back a yeah. bit more. Yeah, he's a fascinating figure. Yeah. I mean, he, 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 he talked less than the other guys in the band, and he... Um, was more composed and withdrawn to some degree, not private, well, not not a shut-in or something. Mm-hmm. He, he he had a good time, as did everybody in that bus and van, but but he um, 
saw himself more maybe as an as a individual than, than, than the other guys in the band did. And, and he has done no press, and he doesn't talk to people. And, and he, you get a sense that he and Mare had an ongoing friendship, relationship, conversation, at least a conversation. Yeah. It's like a dialogue. He was yeah. able to talk to him about stuff, but like yeah. he says that Mars didn't want to participate in the book, but it's clear that he on some level did. Like it's yeah. what you call participation in that, how he defined participation, I guess, is, a, is his own thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's another testament to what Bob, what Bob Meir has done is, is, you know, over six and a half year, plus years of, of working on this thing, um, it, is, it is so hard to get so many people to talk, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. to have a dialogue, to actually go on the record, um, let alone, every, you know, to some degree have a dialogue with everybody in the band and most of the people around them and their family members and the label. And uh, it is an amazing, <laughs> as someone who, was working on a book now it, it, and, and, and hitting my head against the wall sometimes. It is an amazing testament to, to what Mary has done to get so many people to cooperate uh, and over time to keep at it and to come back the 20th time to get somebody to say yes. Uh, it's really impressive. Yeah. It's, and it's a testament to the love that people projected onto the band or the love they had for the guys in the band and the love that was there amongst the band members, I would say. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. <clears throat> how else are you going to get all those people to, despite everything they did, and they perpetrated on everybody else, mm -hmm. you know, there's still this, like, ah, but you got to love them, you know, like the, yeah. the lovable losers or whatever. That's what the yeah. replacements, and the, which sounds hokey, but in a sense was kind of what they yeah. were and proud about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just weird. But, yeah, Mars was the first one to break off and and have his own life essentially that he didn't have to depend on anymore uh, at some point being yeah. in the band he was also kind of shoved out but I think the way Mir kind of portrays it he's angry about being shoved out but he also kind of knows like on some level it's probably better that I'm not in the band anymore you know on a personal yeah. human level yeah. you know just in terms of yeah, his growth as an individual yeah um because paul and tommy still had so much more growth to have to go through and bob was out of the picture by then i mean uh well no it was out of the picture as a in the band that mm -hmm. had not passed away yet but um you know anyway it's yeah, yeah it's sad that's the other thing if there were moments where i thought god this yeah. is so sad to read because I love the band so much and then you're reading you know repeatedly about like wow yeah. you guys you know yeah how could you do this to yourself all the time so and I mean that gets into the whole psychological backgrounds and the fact that they came from families that had I mean Bob Stinson was sexually abused as a kid um, which is they Bob Muir makes the point is you know it's all Monday morning quarterbacking now, but would, would appear to be where the genesis of all his problems would come from. Well, the genesis of his problems and the genesis, in a way, of the band, insofar mm -hmm. as it was his way to protect his younger brother. Mm -hmm. Right. Keep him out of this abusive situation at home, 
let's form a band and get yeah. out of the house. Yeah, yeah. Which was it's very Robin Hood esque or, or Peter Pan. Sorry, it's more Peter Pan esque yeah. in a sense. And 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 uh, but they were both, you know, Bob was already a drinker and a you know smoking pot and whatever as a as a teen, and uh, Tom, you know Tommy gets in the band at twelve or thirteen. Yeah. You know, and Bob sticks a bass in his hands yeah. and says, "Play and, this." And then he yeah. learns to be, and he's a great bassist. You know, turns yeah. out. I mean. You know, Mars, what they said, his family was blue-collar, but he had some, some history of schizophrenia in the family they, they made mention of. And Westerberg, you know, his father was an alcoholic. He became a raving, you know, he became a, not a raving, but an alcoholic himself. And, uh, you know, the alcoholism was, without a doubt, very early on in the book, established as, like, by Mira's, like, this existed in a big way yeah. <laughs> uh, in their lives. And so and as a reader, it kind of prepares you for, why is he telling me about this kind of family yeah. history stuff? And then you realize, okay, now as you get into it, you see why. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, that's, that's the kind of sad part of it is, you know, that it's just like, God, you, I wanted so much for them to succeed. As a listener, as a fan, you know, listening to the records <clears throat> when they went on the major label, you know, like, I remember reviewing for my college paper, Don't Tell a Soul, and wanting so much to like it and kind of giving them a fair to Midland review because um, probably lying a bit, like, it's this kind of good, you know? <laughs> Where, yeah. You know, I still have the album and I played it. I've been playing it recently. It's like, there's good songs on it, but it was marred, in my opinion, looking back, by the production. Mm. And uh, the classic, it was overly produced. Not to give short shrift to Tommy Stinson, who I guess I should say comes out ultimately in the book as a guy who went through the fire and survived amazingly yeah. and is like all there. Yeah. You know, like he learned something from it. He was down, he's back up. He went through a ton of growing and he, as the youngest one, you know, whether he's being protected by his older brother or just protected by Paul and the rest of the band and then coming into his own. But by the time the band... <laughs> by the time the band breaks up he's like 21 or 22 yeah. you know it's just like he's literally lived yeah. an adult life you know he's lived a whole person's life by the time he hit 21 or 22 yeah. and he has to go like the first thing he ends up doing is, is doing um, telemarketing yeah and he says in the book like it was in doing telemarketing that he had this like light bulb moment where he realized I, if I was going to succeed at this, I had to have confidence. Mm -hmm. So it, it's how he learned to have confidence and convince somebody else to do, you know, to whatever, buy the thing he was selling. Um, and I thought, like, wow. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know if there's what self-help books he was reading or whatever at the time, <laughs> but, I mean, there's definitely, like, or if it just was literally an epiphany, you know. Um, but he turned his life around through that. And... Uh, and, you know, it was the one who got them to go back on the road, whatever, two years ago when they yeah. played a bunch of shows yeah. and stuff and played, did play on NBC again. You <laughs> oh, know, that's right. The replacement, at least the remaining members of the replacements played. It's funny how that Saturday Night Live show that they were on uh, has become this legend of, of, you know, destruction or failure or something. Mm -hmm. It's really good. It yeah. is good. It's it's not I looked it up. That bad. I yeah. went back on YouTube to find it, which was not easy to find, by yeah. the way. And I'd yeah. seen it once before, but I was like, they talked about how Paul, you know, uses the F word. He steps back from the 
from the mic at one point says, you know, play it, fucker, to Bob when it's Bob Solo and <laughs> Bastards of Young or something. And um, you can't, re- you couldn't hear it. No. I mean, it, it, you, you see him say something, but you, it was so fast, you couldn't make it out. Yeah. Um, and the Lorne Michaels' reaction to that was classic. It's I a just, Lorne Michaels thing. Yes, yeah. yeah, doing his thing, like, I'm in control here, and how dare you, how dare you. Right. You know, like... What do you mean, how dare you? You're the guy who started Saturday Night Live. <laughs> it's anti-establishment from the get-go. was, you know. You're the guy Not that anymore, put the replacements obviously. on live national TV. You get what you get. Yeah. That's the replacements that you yeah. wanted. And now you don't want them. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they did. They played, two, they played two songs on the show. I forget what the second one was but uh, now, but they both sounded pretty good. They were, yeah. they were all there. Yeah. And... Um, you know, they didn't phone it in at all. I guess they never did. But they also didn't... It wasn't totally shambolic, you know? Yeah. And at the end of that last song, which is near the end of the show, there's, like, a close-up on Bob's, you know, playing right up to the camera. And he does this crazy thing where he kind of goes... <laughs> the guitar and he just goes, wham! And, like, yeah. like he'd already <laughs> detached it, and he just threw the guitar over his shoulder, like, wafts it <laughs> through the air, and it's bam! Hits a thing. You know, like, yeah. how many times have they done that? A million times. They destroyed their stuff, but... You know, well, I think it's kind of telling that the one time they had a national, big time audience and they played really well, it still ended up being a disaster for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, oh, and also was like also part of the problem was though that the show was preempted by something else. Like that particular uh, episode of Saturday Night Live wasn't seen <gasps> by everybody that night, or maybe came late to other people, and I forget. Okay. It's in the book for why. There was something else going yeah. on that it got pushed back later or something. So, you know, it was like cosmically. They were just, you know, never... Yeah. The stars were never going to align for them. Well, that way. we're, we're kind of running out of time. But just to follow up on that, something that I kept going back and forth on as I read the book is, well, kind of a spoiler, the replacements did not become the most successful band in the 80s. So how much of that was this kind of cosmic everything just goes wrong at the last minute for that for them and how much of it was them intentionally seeming seemingly intentionally sabotaging themselves at just the right moment well i think they were like this band that at that time you know in a way they were the right band at the right time to for for a little while mm-hmm. which was their enthusiasms their openness their fanishness um was was perfect for this moment when you know indie rock was becoming this kind of national thing, and uh, they were the they were the right band at the right time for a while, and then uh, as as networks develop and uh, sounds develop and it, it starts breaking off, you know there, there's fringes to indie rock after a while, but they sort of were the band that kind of. S- summed it all up at the start uh, and kind of were so hopeful and positive at the start and had a pop thing uh, at the same time that there was the, 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 the raging guitar sound. Um, there was a pop thing that made more sense then than it would at the end of the decade. Yeah. Well, I, sorry, I'm going to quote Yates. I mean, you, you kind of put them at the center of that whole scene, which they were, but the center could not hold. I yeah. mean, they, they just couldn't. And it's a, totally a mix, in my opinion, and it's laid out in the book, both cosmic and self-sabotage. But I think they really did try. I mean, this is the other part that's so tragic to me about the book, is that, or the story, 
is that when they get their chances with the label, they, you know, they clearly want to still be the replacements, but Paul's songwriting is evolving in a certain ways, and they want to do things differently, and then they, they can't work together to fix themselves because of, you know, the bubble that they're in and the us against them, and just reverting to that us against them was easier than really trying to grapple with, wait, is there a way for us to evolve as a band and still be the replacements? Yeah. I mm-hmm. think that they, they within themselves grappled and, nev- and did not succeed in overcoming the notion of selling out or being co-opted or whatever. And there's a great little moment where um, Paul Westerberg gets to, to have some time with Mo Austin, who is the, who is the president of Warner Brothers Records, um, and Sire was a part of Warner Brothers, and he's kind of pleading with them about, can you guys give us more support on this next record and stuff like that, and just, but talking, not pleading, but kind of playing, you know, pleading his case for like the replacements deserve to get a little bit more support. And Mo Austin, who's like this storied, you know, the, the dude who Frank Sinatra handed reprise records to <laughs> and said, you know, take it over, Mo, don't be an accountant anymore, do this, and he's run it for all these years and run it very successfully, kind of presents, <laughs> pre- presents Westerberg with what is kind of a Faustian bargain, a small, teeny-weeny one, but mm-hmm. kind of says, well, I have a friend in Minneapolis who's opening a big mall up there. It turns out it's the Mall of America, yeah. <laughs> and he knows whoever the guy is who owns the Mall of America. And uh, could you guys play it when it opens? Could you play at the opening? And, you know, Mir has this great moment where it's just like Paul Westerberg sitting there, you know, knowing what he's being asked to do. Uh Not fully, oh, he says later, not fully understanding why he should have just said yes, but he could not bring himself to say yes. Yeah. And he sticks to his guns and says, no, we don't play mall mall openings. And that's it. I mean, Mo, it's it's a little mafioso-like, but, I mean, Mo Austin just cuts him short. You know, that's the end of the meeting. And the next time he sees Mo Austin, he's like, hey, Mo. And Mo's like, eh, shuts the door. You yeah. know? And it's just like, that's, that was it. And it was all like, well, that, you know, they couldn't really play the game you mm-hmm. know, the way you have to play the game. And, right. they, they were, and they were willing to not play that game. Yeah. They were going to play their own game. And, and that was great. That makes them so true to the core of what they were and, and are remain. But it also is why they did not ultimately succeed on a, on a yeah. bigger yeah. Uh, scale. But it's why they they deserve a book as good as this. Yes. yes. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers do not. Yeah. Yes. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> I, a friend of mine read that and said, just, oh, this isn't a terrible you know, book. And I said, you know, I'm glad because like, I've never been a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, so I would not want to read that book anyway. But um, sorry to knock the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> book. But That's all right. Maybe it's an Anthony Kiedis' autobiography. Or something. <laughs> like, who cares, man? But what a waste of space. But these guys were not wastes of space, even though there are a lot of people out there who probably thought they were. But far be it. That's far from the truth, as Bob Mears' book totally points out, so or makes clear. Any last words? Do buy some replacements records. Yeah. <laughs> buy the records. Buy the book. Um, you know, when I went yeah, on the road the with them for a week, at the end of the week, I was sick. I mm-hmm. was like, I, I think I almost had like pneumonia or something. It was just so overwhelming and exhausting. And they stayed on the road for like three months after that. <laughs> so... They were a force of nature. They truly were. Excellent.
Okay, well, thank you for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. My name is Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Jay Stowe and R.J. Smith. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.